0: four weeks, we're going to look at Easter, the Easter story, and some aspects of, of that with you. And so I'm going to look at uh, something out of the last 48 hours of Jesus' life with you this morning out of the Gospel of Mark. So if you'd like to turn to the Gospel of Mark, we're going to look at chapter 14 this morning. But um, before I do that, we are kind of trad- in the traditional sort of church calendar, we are sort of slap bang in the middle Of something called Lent all right and you might choose to observe Lent you might choose not to observe Lent but um, I always get questions every year about fasting uh, when it comes to to this Easter time and what Lent is and what does it mean and do we need to fast do we not need to fast etc etc and I think it's very important to know why you are doing something if you choose to do it or if you choose not to do it because ultimately if it just becomes a thing that is a tradition it's meaningless Uh, And it lacks the power that God wants it to have. So I am going to just, for very briefly, just chat a little bit about the history of what Lent is. Um, And uh, Lent starts with Ash Wednesday, um, uh, where people traditionally have put ash on their faces. There's a a, a shrove Tuesdays, where everyone enjoys making pancakes and running down the streets of St Albans, um, and the idea of Shrove Tuesday is that you use up everything in your larder before you begin to uh, fast, and that means the last flour and the last water you use up to make pancakes. Although I suspect people have got much more in their larders than that. Um, but anyway, so what is Lent supposed to be? Well, Lent is supposed to, it traditionally has been it wasn't instituted by Jesus. It's a a church tradition that has grown up uh, and started around the 4th century, and it's a time of fasting, moderation, self-denial, and uh, traditionally, obviously, started and observed by the Catholic Church, and then also by some Protestant denominations, including the Anglican tradition as well. And so it begins on Ash Wednesday, and it ends traditionally on Easter Sunday, and it's a period of 46 days. Um, 40 days, not counting the weekends, but if you include the weekends, 46 days where people are encouraged to give up something to eat sparingly or give up a particular food or habit like not watching TV or not eating chocolate or whatever it is, and it's seen as as a six-week period of self-discipline and seeking God, and this can be a very powerful thing. Uh, I, I have regularly in my life observed fasting as a, as a spiritual discipline, um, and at various stages in my life have done that more or less. But it is a very powerful way of humbling yourself and asking God to speak to you. It can be incredibly powerful. And so Lent is supposed to r- remind people of the value of repentance. And Esther 4 and Jeremiah verse 6 speak about the people of Israel repenting with sackcloth and ashes, and, and part of, of Lent is, is, is part of the tradition is in, in that, mirrors that. Um, and unfortunately, though, over centuries, this tradition of Lent has also taken on much more of a sacramental value, and what I mean by that is that many Catholics still believe that giving up something for Lent is a way of attaining God's blessing— That if you give this up, God is going to bless you, whatever that is that you give up. I just want to point you once again to the joy of the New Testament and the joy of the gospel that says grace and blessing in your life is completely unmerited. It's free. It's a gift of God from heaven to you, and you don't have to earn it at all. Amen. This is what we celebrate as Christians. Romans 5.17 free gift of grace is a gift of righteousness to us that is completely unmerited and completely unearned. And so I would also point you to what Jesus said about fasting in Matthew chapter 6, and I've said this many times. I want to say it again. Jesus said this, if you do choose to fast, he said, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men that they are fasting because that's what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees put on, put on ashes and sackcloth to show everyone they were fasting. I tell you the truth, they have already received their reward in full, but when you fast, so Jesus is saying, he's affirming fasting as a practice, a spiritual discipline. When you fast, put oil on your beard, on your head, wash your face, don't put ashes all over your face, wash your face, get up, look normal, so that it not it will not be obvious to men that you're fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. Amen. Seems to be a little bit in direct contradiction to some of the tradition of the church that makes it very obvious when you are fasting. Jesus says, when you fast, absolutely, be careful how you do it. Don't make it obvious to other people. The only one who needs to know <laughs> is your Father in heaven. And Jesus Uh, The only only thing I want to add to that is to say that remember that Jesus did ask us. He he didn't ask us to fast. He did ask us to be baptized. (laughs) And he did ask us to break bread. And that's what he does ask us to do. Those are the only two things he's asked us to do. Repent. Be baptized. It's interesting to me that people can be more fussed about observing Lent than they are fussed about being baptized. And yet Jesus says, I want you to be baptized. Yes? So I'm trying to make friends this morning, but I'm not sure that I am. But anyway, here we go. And so I would simply conclude by saying this, that fasting is incredibly powerful. It's a wonderful spiritual discipline. And you might choose to observe Lent, and that's absolutely fine. Every Christian has that uh, – has the the, – the uh, opportunity to do that, and there's nothing wrong with setting some time aside to focus on Jesus, on his death, and on his resurrection. But uh, just restricting that to a 40-day period, it should be something that is ongoing in our lives, that all of our lives we are asking Jesus how he wants to change us and what we need to change of, what we need to repent of. And I am absolutely sure that Jesus would much rather that we are giving up unforgiveness jealousy, anger, resentment, bitterness, day by day, every day of the year, than giving up chocolate for 40 days. So, moving on. <laughs> I want to talk to you this morning about something that happened in the last 48 hours of Jesus' life. And we read this beautiful Beautiful, beautiful story in the first 11 verses of Mark chapter 14. And it says this Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. And while he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. And she broke the jar and she poured the perfume on his head. And some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, what, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. Always self-righteous people, right? Uh, You could have, sounds like a good thing, giving the money to the poor. But they've really been incredibly self-righteous. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. And they were delighted to hear this. And promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. I'd like to just point you to three simple things this morning. Three views of what was about to happen. Three views of the cross. One from God the Father. One other from Mary the worshiper. And the third from Judas the betrayer. Each of them had a particular view of the cross. Let's let's begin with God's view. God, the Father. How did He view the cross? And then we will look at the other two. And I plainly just want to say right up front: God, as our Father in heaven, viewed the cross, viewed the death of Jesus as the Passover sacrifice. Remember, in verse two, it says the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to kill Jesus, but they didn't want to do that over the Passover. Not during the Passover, not during the festival, they said, or the people may write. Remember what the Passover was and why God's plan was that Jesus should fulfill the pattern of Passover. If you think back to the original story in Exodus 12, the Passover was the occasion where the people were about to be judged. And what happened was that they took blood and painted the doorposts of their houses so that the angel of death passed over them and didn't judge them. And that's what they were celebrating. So as they took shelter under the blood of the lamb, isn't that interesting? The blood of the lamb on the doorposts. Judgment passed over them. And from that point on, after that happened, they were called God's people, Israel, God's chosen nation. And so it was always God's plan that Jesus would be the Passover lamb. He would be the Passover sacrifice. He too was the sub- substitute sacrifice on our behalf, dying for the sins of all people. And that's why Christians believe that salvation comes only through Jesus, because he is the Passover lamb offered up as a sacrifice for all and the teachers and the, the, the of the law wanted to get rid of Jesus and were trying to prevent that from happening over passover and they wanted to rush through his trial quickly so they could get it over before passover happened and uh, even with the schemes of the religious leaders their plans are thwarted and delayed and pilate t- takes longer to make a decision than they expected and the result is of all of that the wonder of all of that is that on Good Friday, as the whole nation of Israel is offering up their Passover lambs, the Lamb of God is being sacrificed to take away the sin of the world at exactly the right time. With all the schemes of the, of the scribes and Pharisees to, delay, to make sure that it didn't happen, God still gets His way. Pilate delays what he needs to do. And as a result, the Lamb of God is crucified as the lambs are being sacrificed by the people. God is amazing. He always gets his plan through. That's the first view that we see of the cross. Jesus is the Passover sacrifice that the Father willed for your sake and my sake that we would be free from sin and that we could know him. Amen. Second view. Uh, is that this beautiful woman called Mary, and she, her view of the cross results in absolute worship and absolute adoration in the most extravagant way. You know, if you remember the story already with the disciples, uh, Jesus had been hinting all along and, and then made it very clear to his disciples that um, he was going to die and that was, he was going to the cross. And um, remember Peter had, had even tried to say, oh Jesus, you know, just relax. You, you're obviously feeling a little bit depressed and you're obviously feeling a little bit down. Don't worry, it's not going to happen. And what did Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. He rebuked him. He said, no, this is the will that God has for my life. I need to go to the cross, and you get behind me. And so the disciples hadn't taken Jesus' predictions ultimately to heart, um, and they just thought he was a little depressed or overreacting. And Jesus, as I said, Peter said that wasn't going to happen, and Jesus rebukes him. But there is, in this story, we see one woman who actually does believe what Jesus was saying was going to happen to him. And so it unfolds here. In Bethany, at the home of Simon, who was a leper, who had been healed by Jesus. And so Mary comes in. We know that it's Mary of Bethany from John 12. And she comes in and she pours over this extravagantly large quantity of very expensive perfume all over Jesus' body. From his head to his toes. Just pours it all over him. And um, the disciples are upset because it's so extravagant. Isn't that, isn't that amazing, extravagant worship always offends people, doesn't it? When you see someone worshiping with all of their heart, it's like, oh, why are they being so boisterous? Why are they being so emotional? It always offends. True worship from the heart always offends the religious spirit in us, doesn't it? Oh, I wish they wouldn't clap so loud. It's a little bit much, you know, I'm, I'm English and we don't do that. <laughs> yes, you do. I've been to Arsenal matches. I've been to Liverpool matches. Don't tell me you don't scream and shout. You absolutely do. And I absolutely do. Of course we do. But we just hide behind that little sort of, oh, it's not, you know. It's extravagant worship. Always offends, doesn't it? And they are so offended. They're so offended that she does this extravagant thing. And Jesus says, leave her alone. She's the only one who's understood. She is anointing me for what is about to happen. I'm about to die. She realizes that, and she's anointing me for burial. And so in a very profound way, Mary believes in the death of Jesus in the way that the disciples don't yet understand. And he says, why are you bothering her? And there's three little things that uh, Mary does believe. First of all, she believes in the the death of Jesus, and that's why he says in verse 8 she's anointing him. And uh, I've just been reflecting on that again this week that um, we challenged our leadership team a couple of weeks ago. We did a a workshop with them. And one of the questions we asked them was, what would we do if Jesus came back on Tuesday? And that was a Saturday. How would we behave if we knew that Jesus was coming back? And so it was a very inspiring talk to hear what people thought we should do in the last two or three days before Jesus came back. Uh, This is a really interesting thought to me. What would you do if you knew you were about to die in a couple of days? As Jesus did. How, how would it change your behavior? Would it change your behavior? Would you do anything differently if you knew you were about to die? I suspect all of us would do some things radically differently if we knew that uh, we were about to die. We would put some things in place. We would say some sorries. We would, we would make some phone calls. We would reconcile. We would forgive. We would do what we could to get right if we knew we were going to die. Amen? And this is what Jesus is saying about Jesus, about Mary. Perhaps she was thinking, I don't know how it's going to happen, but I'm not ever going to get a chance to do this again. He's going to die, and so I'm going for it right now. And so she wanted to let Jesus know of her incredible love in terms of what he had done for her while while he was still alive, and she pours out this extravagant, act of love and devotion and that's the second thing that the story shows is just how great her love for Jesus is and how and how grateful she was for that she had done and thirdly it shows us about Mary that she she didn't really care what other people thought about her (laughs) isn't that amazing she didn't really really care what other people thought about her. She might have known that perhaps she was going to invite criticism for this extravagant act. I mean, after all, it says a whole year's wages. If you, if you put that into, a, into modern terms, I don't know what you earn, and I'm not, I'm not really interested in what you earn, but just think about it your whole year's wages, whatever that is 40,000, 50,000, 60,000, 100,000, whatever it is. One year's wages on a bottle of perfume. That is extravagant, huh? And she didn't really care. She thought, no, Jesus is worth it. She poured out her love to him in this most wonderful act of worship that is poured out. And all of us today, Jesus said, all of us that preach the gospel will reflect on the story to inspire others in terms of their worship for Jesus. And I trust it inspires you this morning, this extravagant woman who poured out her love Thirdly, we see the view of the cross of Judas, the betrayer. And isn't it ironic that while this extravagant act of worship is happening, at the same time, there's a man scheming to betray the one who's being worshipped. The very same moment it's happening. And uh, I'm always amazed that when you read the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet, Jesus, even knowing that what Judas was going to do, he washes Judas' feet as one of the 12. Man, that always amazes me. To forgive like that, to love like that, to know that someone is about to betray you and get you killed, and yet you're still, as a slave, you put on a slave's towel, and you wash his stinking feet, that is in. Incredibly, unbelievably forgiving. <laughs> I can't even find the words. And yes, J- Jesus does that. You see, Judas ultimately was the great pretender, wasn't he? He wasn't saved. He claimed to be a Christian, he mixed with Christians, and he pretended to be one of the disciples, and yet he never was. Why do I say that? Because the scripture says that he wasn't a true believer. In John 13:10, Jesus says this, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. He is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, and then John adds, for he knew who was going to betray him, and that's why he said, not all of you. Are clean. You see, Judas wasn't a backslider. He wasn't someone who was a Christian and was overcome by some kind of serious sin. No, he was the great, great, great pretender. He was the one who was amongst the disciples, mixing with them, claiming to believe what they did, but he had no faith. He was not saved. And unfortunately, the church can be like this as well. There can be many in the church that are a bit like Judas. They can hang around Christian believers. They can even practice some of the practices of Christians, but they're not truly saved, Don't know Jesus. Not activated by faith, not living by faith. Why do I say that? Well, Jesus said that. (laughs) Matthew 7, verse 22. It says, even... People might even be used by God, and, and Jesus might not, not, um, has not even known them. It, that's, this is what it says. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we did prophesy in your name. We cast out demons in your name, and we did mighty things in your name. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you walk, workers of lawlessness. Isn't that a thought? We can do all the right things without truly believing in Jesus, without having faith in him, that he is who he says he is. Judas was like that. And so Jesus, in spite of knowing that, he, he, he serves and loves Judas right until the very end, knowing that he was going to betray him. And he had shown Judas the same love, the same affection, as he'd done everyone else, except that Judas never comes to a place of repentance, never comes to a place of truly trusting who Jesus was. Well, we need to think about it then. Well, why did Judas decide to be part of the disciples in the first place, part of the guys that were walking around with Jesus being taught by him? Well, perhaps he thought that Jesus' kingdom was going to be a kingdom of great power, political power. Maybe he wanted to try and get a place of privilege himself. Make sure that he was on, in the in crowd, you know, the inner circle with Jesus. So when Jesus' kingdom came, he could be one of the guys. Perhaps when Jesus made it clear that he was walking through towards the cross, maybe Judas thought, yeah, I'm not sure this is going to work out like I thought it was going to work out. Best I make a change. Maybe that's what motivated Judas. I don't know. Perhaps, perhaps it was this extravagant act of love By Mary, pouring out this perfume that actually highlighted to him his own hypocrisy, his own cold-heartedness, and he kind of, he decided in disgust to change sides and to actually, no, I'm not part of this. I can't, this this is not right. And, and, And he betrays Jesus. Whatever the reason it was for Judas, he did regard the cross as foolishness. Remember our study of 1 Corinthians that we've just been working through. What does 1 Corinthians 1 verse 21 say? Let me remind you. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews... Demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Foolishness! But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and Christ the wisdom of God. You see, Judas and many others viewed foolishness as foolishness, what God viewed as his plan for Passover. It was God's way of passing over the sins of the entire human race so that those that trust in his son, those that believe in Jesus by faith, will not die but will be saved. Will not perish, the word says, but have eternal life. That was always his plan. And the question is for you and I, every moment of our lives, are we choosing to Be like Judas a little and say, oh, this is a little bit foolish. Can't see this working out. Or do we really, really trust that the death and resurrection of Jesus is God's plan for salvation for all mankind? Or will we be like Mary who poured out her love and devotion to Jesus because she knew he was going to die for her? To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and Christ the wisdom of God. Amen. I trust, even if you've been saved for many, many years, that this Easter you will reflect again on the power of what it means in your own life to put your trust completely into Jesus, into his plan, into his Calling for your life to trust him completely with your future. And if you don't know Jesus, if you've never put your trust in him, I would love just to pray a simple prayer that I've prayed before. I want to pray it again. I want to ask you to let's close our eyes right now. And we're just gonna, if you would like to, if you don't, if you've never made a commitment to Christ, if you've never seen him as the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world, and today you understand. I'm going to ask you just to pray this prayer after me. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I ask for your forgiveness. I believe that you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I trust and follow you as my Lord, as my Savior. Guide my life and help me to do your will. In your name. Amen.